Thanks again for listening to the Park Hills podcast. We are in the book of Mark. And if you want to know more about our sermon series or the podcast that we're doing, go to parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. I feel like our podcast booth has been taken over by children. Do you feel like that sometimes? <laughs> yeah. You know, I just had to move a bunch of homework to do. Yeah. We're moving homework over. I'm finding little plastic pieces all over the place. Every once in a while, there's candy and pop up here. That's from the clip. That's what I was saying. I, I, I got what you were saying. Yeah. There's a piece of plastic that's clearly from a clip that's holding the noise canceling Moving things. blankets? <laughs> moving blankets. canceling moving blankets? Hey, it's a high tech thing we got going on here. There we go. Pastor Alex. So today we, you know, we're going to start jumping into portions of what Mark is all about. And as we get ready to unpack Mark over the next year, there's a lot of really neat things to talk about. One of the biggest things that we have not talked about on the podcast yet, which is kind of surprising to me with how much we talk about gospel, is we've not actually defined what a gospel is. And so we want to spend a little time doing that today. I make mention of that in the the first sermon in the book of Mark that we did, but at the same time, I didn't feel like we had enough time to dive into the, the deeps, you know, or the depth of it all. Because frankly, and I've said this a couple of times in the podcast, it's not that this information isn't unuseful. Like we could do an entire sermon on just what is a gospel, but it's not really a sermon. It's more of just a class, right? Right. So what we're doing is we're, we're pouring over some of the things that we aren't preaching into the podcast just to help people and give them kind of bonus material, things to work through. So the word eungelion, what does it just mean? Simple English. Good news. Good news. That's it. All right. We're done. We've All defined right. what a gospel. See you next week. Yeah. We've defined what a gospel is. So it is. it just means good news. But as I mentioned in the sermon, and I'm going to read a couple of inscriptions here to show you kind of what's happening. It It's a deeply political term, at least in the first century. And that's not to say... Uh, that it's not used elsewhere because I'm sure you can find a letter or two that has survived that says, you know, Eungelion, I'm coming home from battle or soon, right, or, you know, right. in Greek, obviously they, they would have <laughs> said I'm coming home from battle, but in, in the, I'm sure you can find it elsewhere, but most of the things that we have access to that have survived all of the various wars and, and domination things that have happened over the years are inscriptions and in rocks, right? Victor, you know, victory, Stella, things like that. Uh, Stella is just a fancy word for a, a pole. Yeah, a pole or a, a, a rock. Column, yeah. yeah, some kind of column. You know, you, we talk about like the Art, Arc de Triomphe in, right. in Paris, Paris uh, which is ironic because France has never won a war. And <laughs> sorry, French people. So, but, you know, you let's say you were in the wait, ancient. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. The, the French won a civil war, like ha- half of them had to win that one. <laughs> yeah, some French won a, a war one time. No, I'm, I. The revolution. There's just, there's a great amount of jokes amongst historians about why that particular arc is in Paris, because 
you know, the joke is that it shielded the German soldiers as they marched in in World War One and World <laughs> War Two. But anyway, I'll, I'll move on. This is we, I've gone too deep. But but in that same idea, imagine if that arc in Paris had writings on it that were Roman. That's similar to what we find in the ancient world, right? There's right. there's a right. bridge or there's a, a column of some sort or there's some, you know, the Parthenon or some of these other buildings that have survived. They have different inscriptions. They have different art pieces. And every time that we see the word Aungelion showing up in these places, it has to do with there being a new king in town, something like that. So the, the most famous one, I'm going to read this here, is by Caesar Augustus, who at the time was transitioning from the name Octavian to the name Augustus. And so Octavian was his adopted name to Caesar, Julius Caesar. And when he became emperor, he named himself Caesar Augustus. And he wrote this, the birthday of the God, lowercase g, Augustus, was the beginning of the Aungelion or the good news that came through him to the world. So you can imagine when we get this idea that a new emperor has conquered or someone else has taken over, or in this case, what has happened is Augustus, there was a bit of a civil war after Julius died. Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. We know the names like Mark Antony and, and Cleopatra. All of that's tied into this. And what happens is Augustus wins, declares himself Caesar, and says, this is good news to everyone. Mm-hmm. Now, if Augustus, as I mentioned in my sermon, goes on to be a murderous tyrant, it's not good news to everyone. So he's a key player here. There's a bunch of other emperors that declare this to be really, really good news. And I think what I want to spend a little time with you today on is just imagine being a Roman citizen in the first century or a a subject. Let's say that we live in a, a small German town, right? Or, you know, we're a farmer in a north, north. You wouldn't have quite made it to Britannia, but imagine, you know, you're in France, modern day France, you're a farmer or you're a, a former warrior for your tribe in North Germany or, in, you know, I don't know, pick a place, even Egypt, right? And you get this good news, quote unquote, that there's a new emperor in town. That the, that may not be as concerning as people would like, you know, it usually right. it's a very disconcerting thing and kind of makes us think all kinds of things, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, because like you said, it's, it's a political statement. Gospel is always tied to, to a kingdom, right? And even Jesus does that in, in Mark chapter 1, right? When he, uh, in verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe right. in the gospel. So gospel is always tied to kingdom. It's always tied to exactly that idea of, you know, for lack of a better term, the, the politics of it. Jesus is not talking about you know, the politics that we quite experience, you know, is with political parties. Uh, but he, but Jesus' main message was the kingdom. Right. His message wasn't, you know, if you ask people, it's, it's funny, I was a part of Bible study some one time and somebody said, what is Jesus' main message? And all these, Jesus taught a message of love. Jesus taught a message of peace or of hope. And like Jesus taught those things, but Jesus' main message was the kingdom. He, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like two men, you know. So gospel points us to a kingdom. And that's kind of where you're where you're kind of going and getting at is if this is not your kingdom, it's not very good for you. Totally. So so you got to ask the question, 
who is the gospel good for? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if this is good news, sure. obviously Augustus saying this is good news is good news for Augustus and everybody who likes Augustus, but for everybody who doesn't, sure, it's not quite good news. But I think there's parallel to, to Jesus. Like, Jesus' message is good news for all people in that sense. Like, the, it's a spiritual kingdom. So this is good news to everybody. But for those who rebel against this kingdom, mm-hmm. it's not, it's, Actually, the, the true story of the gospel is not good news for them. And there's a lot of really good things for us to process there and consider, just be, even based on what you just said. Think about the idea that if you're a normal German citizen in North Germany when the Romans take over, right, you might actually become more prosperous having the Romans be in charge of you. So you might actually end up with a better future, right? right. You, you might join the Roman military, make way more money than you ever would have as, as a Gaul, and then you you raise up in the ranks and then they give you land and you come home and you're now a homeowner, right? Landowner. You've got subjects. You could you could be better off than you would have been otherwise. But if you're the king of that village, you have nothing to lose but everything, right? You, right. you don't have any control now unless you make a deal with the Romans, which is what Herod did. Right. Herod's family makes this deal with the Romans saying, all right, we'll be in charge. We'll be the king, but... You're the real king. We'll love you. And he actually spent a ton of time with Augustus building these relationships and trying right. to, to make this work. And he became rich out of the deal. The Romans became wildly rich out of the deal with Herod. And then Herod gets to decide what he wants to do with that money. And he rebuilds temples and things like that in, in Israel. Right. And Herod's trying to do that to gain favor with the Jews because to the to the average Jew, this was not good gospel news to them. It Not was, at all. It was actually terrible. And, and this is common with the way the Romans conquered, right? Right. I've always thought about like, man, you've got like Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan or all these people that conquer wide swaths of territory. And it's like, how do you, how do you administrate like half of the known world or right. all of the known world? Because especially when communication takes months to travel from one side of your empire to the other. Right. And, and basically these guys would just set up other people and say, hey, we're not really going to be hands-on. Just give us our money. Mm-hmm. And that that was the Roman technique, right? Like, yeah. hey, we're not really going to be hands-on in Jerusalem, in Israel. Herod, you just right. rule. I'm using air quotes right now. You can't yeah. see them. Um, <laughs> you just rule and uh, make sure that we get our money. We're going to put these guys called tax collectors. They're just going to send. We're going to have some Roman soldiers that are kind of milling around and keeping an eye on things. Uh, but your only two rules are give us our money and don't rebel. And of course, there's a couple of rebellions, eighty seventy, sure. time it gets restored. But you can see the the difference there between like for Herod, this is the the UN galleon of the Romans was great. He prospered. Yep. But for the common Jew that now is getting taxed like right. crazy, it's not very good news. And then and then what's crazy is then you've got Herod trying to like figure that out because part of him building the temple was like to get the Jewish, the average Jewish person to like him again. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, he gave us this big temple. Aren't we mm-hmm. prospering too? Because we have our beautiful temple back. And so, right. but yeah, you can see how gospel like for some people is great. Some people not so great. Yeah. So being a typical, you know, citizen or subject in the first century, that news didn't always mean good news. So then from that, and I, I make mention of this a little bit in the sermon, but I want to go a little bit more in depth with it just as we have just now. I mean, reading that inscription of Augustus tells me 
knowing the history, looking back, Augustus, that, that was decent news for most people, and he did a great job of consolidating Ro- Roman power. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned in the sermon, by the time the Gospel of Mark comes out, Nero is most likely in charge. That's not good news. Right, right. Right? And, and or, or if you get after, you know, if we get all the way into the, whether the Gospel of John was written as late as I think it was, or definitely the Revelation of John, if we're talking Domitian, he's even worse than Nero. And within That's a few, hard to do. And within a few decades of that, you've got Decius, who's even worse. And then you've got Diocletian in the first century or second century, who's way worse. I mean, some of the worst, you know, uh, religious persecution that, that existed ever. I mean, bodies stacked in the streets just because you say you believe in Jesus or you, you trust Yahweh because they wanted, they wanted you to worship them as God. Like as in, I just read Caesar Augustus saying, right. I, I'm the God. I was born on this day. Celebrate me. Uh, even to the point where there's this one inscription somewhere where uh, Augustus looks to the sky and sees a strange set of stars that some have made reference to. Maybe this is the Jesus birth star narrative. Uh-huh. And Augustus says, that's my father, Julius, taking his rightful seat among the, among the kings. So I don't know if there's really a tie in there, but he definitely was using star language and all that kind of stuff to sort of say this. There is good news. Here's the reason why you can trust me to do this. So then I think about all that and I go, here's, here's where I want to end our talk today. Think about the idea of why then would a gospel writer use that term? You know, yeah, it's a very interesting term to use. It's almost as if, you know, today I think about, you know, the newspaper movies I've seen where kids are out on the street, you know, extra, extra, read all of it. It, it has a little bit of that connotation. Good news was sort of a, a proclamation as you're going through the streets. The, right. the idea of we've won the battle, we've come back. Good news, Germany's now ours or Brit- Britannia's now ours. But there's this other thing going on where why would the gospel writers take that term and then try to rework it, especially in a day and age where we're more hesitant with using cultural language than maybe we'd like to admit. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, flesh that out for me. So there's this thing in, even in today's culture where you know, I've been pulled aside by people because I use a term or a movie or a, a song reference that people think, well, I... You know, that's not, there's no place for that here. I think it's interesting then that the gospel writers have no problem being led by the spirit to appropriate a term like Aungelion and say, this is exactly what it means. Mm -hmm. But the reason why they're willing to do that is because there's a new king. Right. Right. Yeah. I I can't think of a, a better term to describe, especially, I think there, there's even more for our American minds. There's even more meaning in it when you understand the political nature of it and you understand Jesus' message of the kingdom. I think it gives it so much more depth and color to say it's this isn't just like, hey, this is a good story here, or hey, there's there's some good news, you know, like right. anytime I get good news that like good news, we're having pizza for dinner, like sweet, you know, that is good news. But right. this is this is Evangelion. This is right. There's there's a new kingdom here. And that's that's more significant. Yeah. I think when, you know, we, I know we've probably both done sermons, at least I know I have about the word love and how mm-hmm. we can say, I love pizza. I love my mom. I love, you know, my girlfriend. I love whatever. Um, the idea of love being used all over the place, this particular term doesn't seem to have been used all over the place. Right. So it's a very unique term, meaning there's good news. There is a new King. Well then, 
like you just said, what other term would a gospel writer want to use right. about Jesus? I mean, if you think about the, the ministry of Jesus that we're going to walk through in the book of Mark, he is proclaimed by prophetic words. He is the one who's going to bring us the Holy Spirit. He's the one who is coronated by a baptism circumstance that's amazing. And then he's immediately tested in the wilderness, sort of like Adam was, but he f- passes, whereas Adam didn't pass. Then he proceeds to show us that he is king over all of these things. And then he dies, which makes us wonder if he really is the king. Then he rises from the grave and ascends into heaven, which make, is his inauguration. Right. That's the end of the term. He's ready to go. And then he says, I'm coming again to be in charge. Well, then if you're a gospel writer, now 20 years, 30 years, 40 years after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, you're going, no, there's good news. There's a king above all kings running the show. He's coming back. You and I are his subjects, whether you realize it or not. Put your fealty in him. Put your trust in him. Let him be the one that's going to lead and guide you. And when you do that, you're serving a new emperor. You're serving a new king. You're serving a new whatever word you want to use there. Sure, your emperor is great. He's got important things about him, but he's not the the one. And so I think about Paul, the way Paul's talking about this, the way that you know Peter and others are talking about it. I'm going, all right, that makes a ton of sense as to why they would use that term. But that's a pretty big political term to be using. Yeah, it's a bold term that sometimes we just, you know, when when I use gospel now, I'm pretty much only using it in the context of the church, right? Like, sure. We don't, when a new president comes over, it's nobody says like, oh, it's the good news of Donald Trump or it's the good news of Joe Biden. Like nobody's using those terms. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's okay. I'm not like knocking that. But what that can sometimes do in our minds is not recognize some of these terms in their deeper meanings. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, yeah, I think it's helpful to think through those deeper meanings. It's really important. And I think the thing that I would leave us on is this idea of not only is the gospel important to believe, but part of what the gospel writers are doing here is they're saying, since the gospel is true, you must live it out. Mm-hmm. Your life shouldn't match the fact that there's a king. So just like there were rules that come with the Roman emperor taking over your town, right? You're going to pay taxes, like we mentioned earlier, or you're going to serve as a conscript in the army for a period of time. And if you do that, you'll get land out of the deal. You know, you might benefit from it, from serving this king. What the gospel writers are saying is there already is a king in town. He's better than any other king that there is. This one is a spiritual king, like I mentioned in the sermon. The spiritual king deserves your, uh, your allegiance, your fealty. Give it to him, but then live it out, which to me challenges me as a Christian and should challenge all of us to think, okay, am I really doing that? Do I right. believe he's the king or do I just think of gospel as, well, I'm looking for a gospel-believing church. I hear that. Mm-hmm. I like gospel music, right? Mm-hmm. I, I want to win the, the gospel Grammy award uh, or whatever it is. And I'm going, hey, it just gets watered down in, in our modern world. Whereas in the ancient world, it would have made a ton of sense exactly what's going on. Right. Because imagine not living as if there's a new king in in the ancient world, right? Like, yep. imagine trying to live as if there wasn't the Romans, you know, and that's basically what the zealots, zealots do and the zealots have a very troubled history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's helpful to think through there's responsibility, but there's also uh, tremendous rewards or benefits from it. And, I, you know, as, as John writes revelation he's explaining like hey you want to be a part of this kingdom mm-hmm. the new testament tells us a lot of things that we're expected to do and responsibilities that we have but then revelation 
comes in and says, hey, but there's a lot of reward at the end of this. Right. Yep. So that's it. That's the idea of gospel. And I, I think one of the things that bothers me sometimes is people talk about not being political. And what I find interesting is the Bible is very, very, very political. Oh, so much so. 